the title of my sermon this morning is Misidentification, Misidentification. Setting out from Hamburg, Germany, one day to give a concert in London, violinist Fritz Kreisler had an hour before his boat sailed. Imagine having to travel by boat. You know, we're so blessed with airplanes nowadays. Imagine having to travel all the way overseas by boat. I don't know. I mean, of course, this was a little bit more common between Germany and London. Uh, so upon taking, okay, let me see, where am I at? Um, he wandered into a music shop where the owner asked if he could take a look at the violin Chrysler was, caroling, or, um, Chrysler was carrying. Upon taking hold of the violin, the owner then vanished and returned with two policemen, one of whom told the violinist, you are under arrest. For what, Chrysler asked. You have Fitz Chrysler's violin, replied the, the, uh, the, uh, the policeman. But I am Fritz Chrysler, the man proclaimed. You can't pull that one on us. Come along to the station, the officer concluded. As Chrysler's boat was sailing soon, there was no time for prolonged explanations. Chrysler asked for his violin and played a piece he was well known for. Now are you satisfied, he asked. And of course they were. Here's the point. It is easy to misidentify someone. I don't know if this has ever happened to you. Have you ever been in like Walmart and you're walking along and you look ahead and you think you recognize somebody and you cry out their name, hey, Joe, and guess what? It's not Joe. You just kind of look weird now. You know, you're that random guy yelling at a stranger in the middle of the aisles in Walmart. I guess that's not a complete oddity at Walmart, but still. This morning, this is, we're going to learn how this is nothing new this morning. That's really what we're going to find out. For the past 2,000 years, many people have misidentified who Jesus was. This morning, what I'd like to do is take a look at Luke chapter 9, verse 18 to 22, and attempt to answer a very simple question. Here's the simple question. Who is Jesus? But before we do, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Dear Father in heaven, I thank you and I praise you for all that you've done for us. I ask that you bless us in a powerful way now as we enter our time of study. Allow us to know that you're just an awesome God that can do all things. Allow us to push aside the things that are distracting us and allow us to put you in the forefront of our minds as we open your word and try to determine your true identification. In your name, amen. Turn to me to Luke chapter 9. Luke chapter 9. For the past several weeks, we've been making our way through the ninth chapter in Luke. A little bit earlier, Shirley read some of what I preached about over the last several weeks. Chapter 9 begin, or began with Jesus sending his 12 disciples out on their own. The first time he sent them out, they were on their own to minister to the people of the area in groups of two. In Luke chapter 9, verse 3 to verse 6, we uh, read the instructions uh, that Jesus gave. So look there with me. You know, chapter 9 verse 3 to begin with, and I'm going to read verse 3 to 6, and then I'm going to read verse 7 to 9 before I get to my text in verse 18. So start at verse 3. And Jesus, and he, Jesus, said to them, Take nothing for your journey, neither a staff, nor a bag, nor bread, nor money, and do not even have two tunics apiece. Whatever house you enter, stay there until you leave that city. And as for those who do not receive you, as you go out from that city, shake the dust off your feet as a testimony against them. Departing, they began going through the villages, preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. So, take nothing for you. They were told to take nothing for their journeys, and that's what they did. But this situation caused some confusion, is a good word to put it, uh, amongst the high-ranking individuals of the area. At some point during this process, Herod, the Tetrarch, 
from a, who was ruler over the region of Galilee, has something of a breakdown and starts questioning Jesus. Uh, look at verse 7 to verse 9 now. Now Herod the Tetrarch heard all that was happening, and he was greatly perplexed because it was said by some that John had risen from the dead, and by some that, the, that Elijah had appeared, and by others that one of the prophets of old had risen again. Herod said, I myself had John beheaded, but who is this man about whom I hear such things? And he kept trying to see him. So here at the Tetrarch, we, this is kind of a review from a couple weeks ago here at the Tetrarch, also known, maybe better known as Herod Antipas, was the son of Herod the Great. Herod the Great was the man who tried to have all the newborn babies, including Jesus, killed in Bethlehem. I guess he succeeded to some level of killing all the, or the, the newborn male children in Bethlehem. Of course, he did not succeed when it came to Jesus. Uh, this man ruled over the region of Galilee uh, from uh, the portion of um, Herod Antipas ruled over the region of Galilee within the kingdom of Israel. He, Herod Antipas, is best known for taking and marrying his brother Philip's wife. That's pretty much what this man's known for. But what really made the person who made this known was John the Baptist, who consistently pestered him about the sin that he committed. Eventually, Herod had him arrested, had John arrested, and eventually John was beheaded at the behest of, of Herod's wife's daughter, Herodias' daughter, Salome. This led to Herod's confusion, all of the situation, all that was taking place. Jesus' notoriety led to Herod's confusion. Some believed that Jesus was John the Baptist risen from the grave. Herod had a hard time believing this because Herod saw his severed head. It's a little bit difficult to believe someone's alive again when you saw them dead. Of course, some believe that he was Elijah descended from heaven, while others believe that he was one of the many other prophets that would have fit into that category. Like I said, all of this made Herod a little upset. He got confused, uh, at which point the Tetrarch questioned, as we see in chapter 9, verse 9, Who is this man about whom I hear such things? In Luke chapter 9, verse 18 to 22, my text this morning, Jesus addresses his misidentification. So that he addresses the question, who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? Now, people have asked this question for the past 2,000 years, and mankind has a lot of different answers as to who Jesus is. Now, Jesus is going to ask his, his disciples two questions, which make up my two points this morning. So we're going to look at two questions that the disciples asked. The first question, who do the people say that I am? Who do the people say that I am? Look at verse 18 and 19, 18 and 19. And it happened that he, while he, and it happened that while he was praying alone, the disciples were with him. And he questioned them, saying, again, here's the question, who do the people say that I am? They answered and said, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, but others that one of the prophets of old has risen again. So the Gospels of Matthew and Mark tell us that Jesus asks his disciples this question, while heading towards the villages around Caesarea, Caesarea Philippi. That's Mark chapter 8, verse 27. Caesarea Philippi, I mean, I, I had a map, I took it out for whatever purpose, but Caesarea Philippi was about 25 miles north of the northern tip of the Sea of Galilee. So if you can envision the top of the Sea of Galilee, you have Capernaum and Bethesda, the two towns that they were most involved in, that the most of Jesus' ministry to this point has taken place, they're about 25 miles north of that. Luke tells us that Jesus was praying alone when his disciples, meaning the group, um, the, with his group. So he was praying alone with his disciples, meaning he was praying with them as a group. The crowd was not present. 
Thus, the group must have stopped for rest. So they're traveling up to Caesarea to Philippi, and they stopped at some point to rest, at which point this conversation begins. Luke frequently records, and this is kind of a piece of interesting information, Luke frequently records Jesus praying before a significant event. So this is him praying before a significant event, and we'll have to see in the coming weeks exactly what that significant event is. So after asking the question, who do the people say that I am, the disciples give three answers that they must have heard from the crowd. These are the same three answers that Herod, the Tetrarch's advisors, gave him. So this is information that the disciples gained from the crowd, from the population, as well as Herod's advisors gained from the population. The first possible answer was John the Baptist. John the Baptist, of course, Jesus himself, or John himself quoted the prophet Isaiah in describing himself. He, uh, John said in John chapter 1, verse, as recorded by in John chapter 1, verse 23, I am a voice of one crying in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord. And that's a quote of Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3. John is the one who was to prepare the way for the Messiah. He was to prepare the way for the Messiah, and he was predicted many years beforehand. The second possible example, the second possible identity of Jesus that the disciples gave from the crowd, from the population, if you want to call it that, was Elijah. Elijah. Uh, you, would probably, you recognize Elijah? He's probably the most popular prophet in the entire Old Testament, yet he never actually wrote any of the prophetic books. He was obviously a major influence to most of the writings, but not any of the books, the actual prophecy books. Elijah did not write any of them. Many of the people of Israel were waiting for Elijah to return. Here's why. Uh, Malachi chapter 3, verse 1 says, Behold, I am going to send my messenger, and he will clear the way before me. And the Lord, whom you seek, will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger and the messenger of the covenant, in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. And then Malachi writes once again, Malachi chapter 4, verse 5, he says, Behold, I am going to send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. John the Baptist fulfills these two prophecies. That's the point here. John the Baptist is the fulfillment of these prophecies. Now, this is not saying that John the Baptist is the reincarnation of Elijah. Like, as an Elijah has not been reborn in a sense, in a sense. He, John the Baptist is still John the Baptist in the flesh. He is a type of Elijah, is the way we would put it, uh, if we're trying to understand things. The point of all of that, the point of me telling you that is this. People were looking for Elijah to return. That's why they identified, some people at least identified Jesus as being Elijah. And the main reason for this, of course, is because Elijah never died. He, descend, he ascended to heaven, so the thought would be maybe he descended from heaven again. The final group of people is one of the other prophets, uh, one of the prophets of long ago raised back to life. Another prophet, this could be the written prophetic works of different individuals like Daniel, Jeremiah, Isaiah, Ezekiel, Micah, Malachi. It could also be other prophets. Uh, the man that came after Elijah was Elisha. So we have Elijah and Elisha. Maybe it's Elisha that came back or any number of individuals that were not recorded in the Bible. Uh, it could have been any one of them according to the crowd. That's what they're getting at here. So now my question is, who do people today say Jesus is? So I did some research, and I'm going to look at different religious groups and see what they say, who they say Jesus is. Buddhism rejects the concept of God as a whole. So Jesus is considered by Buddhists to be nothing more than a wise spiritual leader. Hinduism is made up of many different beliefs and views. If I get Hinduism right, Hinduism is pretty much I get to pick and choose the best parts of everything else, and I'm set. That's what Hinduism is for the most part. 
One view would call Jesus a wise teacher, while another might see him as a personal form of the gods Brahman and Vishnu. In either case, Hindus believe Jesus is not the, not the unique son of God who created the universe because they believe that God is everything and everything is God. Hindus would also dismiss the idea of Jesus as Savior, trusting instead in the law of karma. Now we have, um, I, I don't know why I picked um, you know, Buddhism and um, Hinduism, but the next one I have here is Islam. I would almost say, I mean, Judaism is, is usually all, you know, Christianity came from Judaism. I would say that Islam is maybe closer to Christianity than even Judaism is today. Islam, I mean, uh, Islam teaches that Jesus was the greatest prophet ever outside of Muhammad. Of course, Muhammad is the greatest. Jesus was number two, according to their teachings but rejects the crucifixion of Christ, and then, of course, thus the resurrection as well. Despite this, many Muslim people are coming to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ by the day. This is a population in our world that are truly coming to know Jesus as the Lord and Savior. Finally, we have Judaism. Judaism and Christianity believe in the same God, and I like to say that because the Jewish people of today, their God is not the same God we worship in reality. I mean, it's just, they, they, they might have had the starting point, but they've gone off into left field now um, compared to what we believe the Bible says. Jewish teachers think poorly of Jesus, as is evident from the New Testament writings. It's very clear that this is the case just from what we have. Um, the Israelites expected a king like David. They expected a king to come down and save them physically, um, not a poor carpenter's son uh, to be the Messiah. To this day, many Jews consider Jesus a false prophet. So here's a little illustration I found interesting. Alfred the Great was the 9th century king who saved England from conquest by the Danish. At one point during his wars with the Danes, Alfred was forced to seek refuge in the hut of a poor Saxon family. Not recognizing her visitor, the woman of the house said she had to leave and asked Alfred to watch some cakes she was baking. But the king had other things on his mind and did not notice that the cakes were burning. Upon her return, the lady unknowingly gave her sovereign a hearty scolding. She yelled at her king. The point I'm getting at in all of this is this. It is very easy to misidentify Jesus. And we need to do whatever it takes to avoid that in ourselves and in other people. Too many people have the wrong idea, the wrong answer to the question of who is Jesus. But just like it is today... During New Testament times, there were faithful followers of Jesus who had the right answer. And let's take a look at that now. So we have the first question, who do people say I am? Now Jesus asks, who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? Let's start at verse 20, and we're going to make our way down to verse 22. Verse 20, and he, Jesus, said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered and said, the Christ of God, the Christ of God. Of God. Up to this point in the narrative, we have different groups of people that have designated Jesus as the Christ or the Messiah. We have the angels in, in the Christmas story. They announce the birth of the Messiah. We have the narrator, who of course is Luke, the author of this gospel. We have the demons in Luke chapter 4, verse 41, as Jesus is casting them out. They're crying out that he is the Messiah, and he's telling them, keep your mouth shut. And we have indirectly Jesus himself in chapter 4, verse 18. But this is the first time that the disciples have recognized him as such. The first time that in, our, in, in the book of Luke and in the Gospels, really, that the disciples have recognized Jesus as the Messiah. Peter and the rest of the disciples have seen some amazing things. They've witnessed Christ control nature when he 
calmed the storm. He's healed the sick. He's raised the dead. And he even last week, as we learned, turned five loaves of bread and two fish into enough food to feed over 5,000 men, not including the women and the children. We're looking at 10,000 total people. And now for the first time, they verbally acknowledge that Jesus is the Messiah. Praise God. Peter answered, Peter's answered, Peter answered Jesus' question by calling him the Christ of God. Let's take a look at this. Um, if you don't know, the word Christ is the Greek word for the Hebrew word Messiah. They're the same thing. So if you, haven't, if you don't know that, this is a good opportunity to learn this. Christ and Messiah, go, they're the same thing. Two different languages, same word. They both mean anointed one. Thus, what, what, Jesus, or what Peter is calling Jesus is the anointed one of God. Now look at verse 21. Verse 21, and uh, where am I at? But he, Jesus, warned them and instructed them not to tell this to anyone. Now, this got me kind of thinking. Why would Jesus tell them not to tell other people that he is the Messiah? But the reality is, the reason this was the case is because it wasn't his time yet. Again, the Jewish people were looking for a physical Savior. They were not looking for a spiritual Savior. They were looking for a physical Savior. They wanted a king to come in and rule them and to take, the, take control of the country, to give them sovereignty again, and to allow them to be the mega power that they dreamed of being. But that's not what Jesus came to do. Jesus' whole purpose was to save them spiritually. So as a result of this, God's plan was for the promised Messiah to save his people, the Israelites, and consequently the world, from their sins not necessarily from their bondage or enslavement to man. That's kind of the thought here. That's why Jesus said, keep your mouth shut. Now look at verse 22. Let's end the text. So I'm going to read verse 21 again just because they go together in my Bible. It says, But he warned them and instructed them not to tell this to anyone, saying, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised up on the third day. So Jesus listed four things that must take place to the Son of Man, that must take place to the Messiah, meaning himself. First of all, the Son of Man must suffer. The Son of Man must suffer. Um, I would clearly say that looking at Jesus' uh, the, the arrest in the process that led to his eventual execution, his eventual crucifixion, he clearly suffered. He suffered physical and verbal abuse. He suffered a whipping that would have killed many people. He suffered the crown of thorns upon his head. The next thing that Jesus said is that the Son of Man must be rejected. I mean, to me, this has got to be worse than the beating. Uh, this, word, this would refer both to the fact that the religious leaders rejected him, but also the crowds and even his followers rejected him. They abandoned him. Everyone but John was at the cross. The rest of them ran off. I mean, everyone, John was the only one at the cross. Everyone else hightailed it out of there. They, they saved their own rear ends. They said, I'm done. We're gone. Then Jesus said the Messiah, the Son of Man, must be killed. And that's, of course, the crucifixion, him dying on the cross. But then it didn't end there, and that's the best part of this whole thing. Jesus also said the Son of Man must be raised. He must be raised back to life again. This is the resurrection. This is the point of everything else. If we eliminated the resurrection from our faith, there'd be no reason to meet here today. A lot of times we have the end. Well, there's a cross. I don't know where those cross is over here. Um, I, 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 have, I feel that that cross should be empty. There's no one on that cross because Jesus ain't dead. He's alive. But in reality, it almost should be an empty tomb. That should be the symbol of our faith because without the cross, there is no empty tomb. 
The empty tomb is what we need to believe in. There's no heaven if there's no empty tomb. We need the empty tomb. We need him to be alive. Now, what came to mind when I was thinking about this, this kind of second question, who do, the, who do you say that I am, is John chapter 4 in the story of Jesus speaking with the woman at the well. So go ahead and turn there with me. We're going to leave Luke. We're done with Luke for this week. Turn with me to John chapter 4. And as you turn there, I'm going to give you something of a context. You have Jesus and his, Jesus and his disciples are making their way up north. they got to go from Judea, where Jerusalem is located, to Galilee, which is where Nazareth and Capernaum and Bethesda are located. To get to Galilee from Judea, they have to go through Samaria or they have to go way around Samaria. Instead, Jesus, of course, having the perfect plan, goes right through Samaria. On his way through Samaria, they stop at Jacob's well in the town of Sychar within Samaria. And there, as his disciples are getting food for him, he has an interaction with this woman at the well. I'm going to read verse 21 to verse 26. Verse 21 to verse 26 of John chapter 4. Of course, Jesus has already had a deep conversation with her. They've gone back and forth about the proper place to worship. The Samaritans believed it was on this mountain that was near them, where while the Jewish people believed it was only in Jerusalem, Jesus has something to say about all of that. Check it out. Verse 21. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But an hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people, the Father seeks to be his worshipers. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. This confused the woman, as you see in verse 25. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When that one comes, he will declare all things to us. And I'm going to pause there. So this woman, who, as we, if you read back, you know that she has been, I think she's on husband number six now, if I understand this right. She is out at the well because she's somewhat ashamed. She's there in the middle of the day instead of when it's cooler at the end of the day. She is a female Samaritan. Jesus is a male Jewish teacher. These two people are not supposed to talk to each other if we're going to look at the norms of society. Yet they're communicating with each other. They're having this conversation. Yet the woman has the audacity to say, oh, even though you are much more qualified to speak on this subject than I am, I'm still going to say that we're just going to wait and then we'll see who's right when the Messiah comes. Well, guess what? Jesus has some news for her. Look at verse 26. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Jesus said himself that he is the Messiah. I mean, people like to say he never did that, but oh boy, it's so, so by far not the case. This woman's reaction was unbelievable. She goes forth, she starts telling everyone. She leaves her water bucket. Remember, she's at the well to get water. Instead, she gets living water, the living water of Jesus. And she goes forth and tells her entire community about who Jesus was and what he's done, almost in comparison to what we're talking about in Luke, how Jesus told his disciples not to tell anyone. The, the woman at the well told everybody about Jesus being the Messiah. This interaction, this, this scenario, the, the circumstances that took place were so great that the disciples in Jesus who had, I'm assuming, planned to maybe spend the night at the most and continue their journey, ended up staying there and ministering to this group of people for two days. I mean, it's an amazing thought, an amazing situation that took place. Then my point in telling you all of that is very simple. Who is Jesus? Jesus is the Messiah. He's the long-awaited long, long Savior 
who came to save all the Jewish people and through them save us. There's not a single person on the face of this earth that doesn't have access to salvation in Jesus Christ. Bottom line, as well as from eventual eternal damnation in hell. Let me close up. So really the question that I need to ask you, let's see, go back to where I wanted to be. The real question I need to ask you is this, who do you say Jesus is? I mean, that's the question he asked, the, he asked his disciples, and they gave a good answer. They gave the best answer. You are the Christ. You are the Messiah. You're the one that we've been waiting for. You are exactly who's supposed to be here. You are the Savior of all the world. But there's a lot of other answers we can give, even as Christians. I mean, in reality, it's easy to give those answers that are kind of wishy-washy, right? Oh, yeah, Jesus, he was, he was a good teacher. He was this or he was that. But in the end of it, anything other than you are the anointed one of God, you are the Messiah, just comes up short. There is no beating around the bush. Jesus is the Savior of all the world. If you don't believe in him, there is only one option for you, and it's not a good option. It's, it's eternal hell separated from Jesus because of your sin. You see, every last one of us have sinned. There's not a single person that's ever walked on the face of this earth that's named that is not God. Jesus is the exclusion of this. Everyone else who's ever walked on the face of this earth has committed a sin. And all it takes is one sin. And that one sin condemned you to go to hell. That one sin is all that it took. Because the Bible says that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And then in Romans chapter 6, verse 23, it says that the wages of sin is death. The payment that needed to be made for our sin, to, to atone for our sin, was death. In the Old Testament, the Jewish people tried to do it with animals. They would make constant sacrifices. You think about the Passover. I was talking to Cameron last night about the Passover and how um, God told the Israelites to put blood on their doorposts to keep the, the angel of death from entering their home to kill the firstborn within their houses. The angel passed over them because of the blood of the lamb. Guess what? We can have the same thing if we just allow him to do so. Because the blood of the Lamb has been spilt, the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, the Messiah, has already died for you. All you have to do is embrace it. Say, yes, Lord, I want you more than anything else. That's it. So whether or not you know the identity of Jesus, I hope you do. If you don't know his identity, now is your time to find him. If you don't find him, you are risking your eternal life. You are literally risking your life because you don't know what's going to happen. You can leave here today and die in a car accident, or you can go to work tomorrow and, and, and have someone come in crazy and shoot you up. That's just the reality of life. You don't know what's going to happen. You need to do something about it now. Turn to Jesus. Embrace him for salvation. Let me close in prayer. Dear Father in heaven, I thank you and I praise you for all that you've done. I ask that you help us trust you no matter what. Help us know that you are such an amazing God who has such amazing plans for us. Lord, it's so easy for us to to start searching in other places for you and for a, a fulfillment within us. But Lord, the only way to look, the only place to look is at you and you alone. Help us trust you no matter what. Help us know that you have such an awesome plan for us. Help us turn everything over to you and rely on you in all that we do. Lord, if there's anyone here who has never accepted you as your Lord and Savior, as their Lord and Savior, I ask now that they, they cry out to you, that they lift you up, and that they put you first in their lives. Allow us to push everything else aside, and allow us to put you first. Lord, in your wonderful name, amen.